0: I'm Michael Levitin, and this is episode seven of The Tell. So I've annoyed people my whole life by asking them for their side of the story. (laughs) Every time something happens, I want to hear everyone else's side of the story, and I want to tell mine. And I find that that makes everybody uncomfortable. People don't want to tell their side of the story, and they definitely don't want to hear mine. And somehow they like the world better if no one's telling each other what happened behind the scenes if no one's revealing (laughs) their feelings uh, that I don't know why they like it better. I I can't really relate. But it's definitely true because I've learned to not ask anymore. You know, a lot of time I would ask, people to just lie. I mean, you know, people really will do anything sometimes not to tell their side of the story. I don't understand it because the impulse to tell mine is so strong. But it, it reminds me of the power of the storyteller. You know, in these cases, a lot of time there's nowhere else for me to go To find the secret story behind what's going on, like, I have to just ask them. And if they refuse to tell me, there's no other option. You know, I'd have to pay them or grab them by the lapel and beat it out of them or something. But, you know, even then they could just make something up. You know, they could still lie. So really, the story will be unknown unless they choose to tell me. And I, I sometimes enjoy that power as a storyteller. That they have nowhere to go for the story but to me i'm the only one with this experience i'm the only one that can tell them that that can be exciting um but usually i, I actually tell the person <laughs> i don't keep it secret <laughs> anyway the, this episode has stories from griffin dunn and avi frey and a memoir song by jeffrey lewis and and these stories involve some unlikely characters ending up telling their side when you wouldn't expect them to um and also some situations where somebody has a secret side going on and somebody else doesn't actually need to hear it told, they can just feel it. This is episode seven of The Tell.
1: It's London. I'm, I'm, I'm like 22 years old. It's the first time I've ever been in a movie where I have a lead. Uh, the movie's called American Werewolf in London. And a little picture called American Werewolf. And, and, I'm, uh, and it was the greatest time I ever had shooting it. And, and these like studio heads and, and the director and you know when you have a lead in the movie, I mean I was like working at Radio City Musical. I was a fucking waiter at Beefsteak Charlie's just months <laughs> earlier. They're all going, oh my God, you're gonna be such a huge fucking star off this. This is gonna be huge for you. It's gonna be so huge. And I remembered before this movie, like a year before, my next-door neighbor was Christopher Reeve, and he was a um, theater actor at the time. He had a little patio, and he was on the phone, and I was through my window, and I'm even envious of his patio. Um, and he's on the phone, he's going, Okay, yeah, all right, well, I'll, I'll, I'll come right over. Okay. And I'm looking through the window, and he looks at me and goes, That was my agent. i went, like, Yeah, he goes... I just got the part of Superman, (laughs) and I said to him, well, I'll I'll be right over. I mean, you know, he said, come on down, sign the contracts. He says, I'll be right over. He goes, how are you going to get here? He goes, I'm going to take a subway. And the agent just said to me, well, enjoy that subway ride, because that'll be the last one you'll be ever to take, and I thought, wow, that sounds fantastic and horrible. (laughs) So now I'm thinking about this some years later. And so I'm thinking, well, what I'm going to do, since I'm going to be, when I get back to the States and everything, I'm going to be this huge fucking star. Um, I think I'm going to take a vacation. And, um, you know, even my agent, at the time I had an agent, you know, like a little mailroom guy from the Melanie Schmendrick agency, um, just going, You're not going to leave me when you become famous, are you? And I said, Of course not. And of course I would. But, um. (laughs) So I decide, I I know exactly what I'm going to do. Because across the street from my flat, uh, where where the studio put me up, was a travel agency. And in the window of this travel agency was this poster, this like yellowed by the sun poster of the most beautiful beach I ever saw in my life. And it said, Welcome to Ceylon. So, on the last day of shooting, I went into that travel agency and I went, "I want a ticket to Ceylon." And they went, "Where is Ceylon?" I said, "It's in your window." And he went, "No, that's for 40 years. They've been called Sri Lanka. That's just an old poster." I said, "I don't give a shit. I want to go there." So I get a post. I get. I, I, I get a ticket. And. I'm leaving the next day, I go to a bookstore, I get everything I can read about about Sri Lanka. And what I learned on my flight, it's like a little teardrop of an island, you know, south of uh, the southernmost point of India. And it's also emerging into a civil war, which the travel agency did not mention. (laughs) But the Civil War will have nothing to do with the story. But, so I learned all about this country, and I land, and they open up the doors to the plane, it's one of those tarmacs you walk across the the airstrip, and the heat is incredible. And it's like, wow, I'm really in the fucking tropics now, man. And I walk through, and I'm, I'm trying to get a cab, and beggars come. Not one person has all four limbs. Um, they're just like crawling all over me, up and down my face and shit like this. And I'm just throwing money out. And I'm going, well, maybe this is what it'll be when I'm a movie star. This doesn't sound like fun. Um, by the way, you have to understand, I'm 22. I'm the narcissist of the century. Um, you know, it's it's like... You take shit so seriously at this age. You believe everything everybody tells you. And I'm thinking I'm having an earnest vacation. The last vacation, the last subway I can take. (laughs) And, you know, I'm really like heartfelt about this journey here. And, uh, you know, I get to the train station, and across the street is this tea house, beautiful old tea house. I have an hour to kill. So I go to the tea house, and I'm sitting down. And this guy comes up and he offers to sell me some hash, which I buy. I'll buy a little brick of hash (laughs) and it's incredibly cheap. And I'm like, I'm I'm, I'm like Sri Lankan here. I got my own dealer here already, you know, I like this town. And uh, so I get the train and the train is like one of those, everybody's on the top of the cars, there are people hanging out the windows. And I found it like a centimeter of place to sit. And I get to this village where I wanted to go, called Nagambo. And I get off in of Nagambo and it is remote. And there are elephants tied to trees, like by chains. It's like that's how they get around. and. I'm just feeling so connected with this country now. You know, I got a dealer, and now I'm. <laughs> and I go up to the, I go up to these elephants, and I start petting their snout or the <laughs> trunk, you know, and I'm patting them. I'm going, yeah, and uh, the snout, the little thing is sniffing. I'm going, yeah. yeah. And all of a sudden, it grabs me and then smashes my head into the palm tree over and over and over. And this fucker with the mahout—you know what a mahout—the stick you beat the shit out of an elephant with—and he beats the shit out of the elephant, and he's screaming at me, which I can tell means, "What the fuck are you doing, touching my elephant?" You know. So I have these bumps, which I carry for the rest of my trip in, in Sri Lanka. And I'm carrying my bag and I'm going down the street <laughs> and I'm noticing the Selanese are like the men are when they walk down the street, this little dirt path in this village, they're all holding hands. They're like just really pleased to be with each other. And I, I, I can't tell what to make of that. i would never seen that before. But that's cool. I'm so... I know some elephants. I'm like, totally down. And I and I get to a boarding house, and the uh the owners of the boarding house are called Mr. and Mrs. Preet. They're two jolly, very chubby, lovely, funny, sweet people. And their their name is much longer than Preet. Uh, you know, in, 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 um Sri Lankan, that's like everybody's last name has like 14 or 17 letters. So I, I couldn't begin to pronounce it. But they just said, Call us, Mr. or Mrs. Preet. And I said, fine, great. And they um, they bring me into their home, and we talk about, you know, our lives. They're very, you know, what are you doing here? When I told them I was in a movie that I just came from, it was I could have might as well have told them I was an astronaut. And they found that interesting, but not like so interesting, like let's keep talking about movies. <laughs> um, it was like, what about your mother? Tell me about your father. Tell me about your brother and sister. And what do you want to do while you're here in Sri Lanka? And I said, well, uh, while I'm here in Negombo, I want to go, um, there's a waterfall in this nature preserve. And I want to I see that waterfall. And they went, oh yeah, we know it well. And I said, I want to buy a sari, because everybody's got a sari and said, well, I'll take you. And and I gotta rent a motorcycle. So the next day, Mr. Preet and I are walking down the street and he says he's going to have a dinner party for me that night when I get back from the nature preserve with the waterfall. And uh, he wants all of his friends in the village to see me, you know, to to, to meet. I said, no, that sounds great. I'd, I'd love to do that, and I'm thinking, no, I'm I'm so fucking connected. Now I got dinner parties being given for me. Here. Yeah. I love this town. And then he reaches out and he takes my hand. And it felt so nice. I understood totally what these guys were doing. They were just buddies, man. They're just walking. And they just like looking at each other. And they and he was a big man and my hand was inside his. And i would never been so proud to walk with another man. And we're passing other guys holding hands, and I'm going, top of the morning to you. (laughs) I love this town. So, so I get my motorcycle, I get my sorry, I got my mat. And I'm going on this, it's about an hour and a half motorcycle ride. And I have this brilliant idea to eat the entire bar of hash (laughs) on the way. Brilliant. Brilliant. Um, Just like, chew it. You know, it was, anyway, I ate it. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I'm going into the jungle on this motorcycle. And I got to tell you, It turned out to be a really good idea in the beginning, you know, because it was so beautiful, you know, and fucking monkeys, howler monkeys are jumping all over, over me, and the noise of the jungle, and it was like an incredible drive. And I get to the waterfall, and it's like levels, waterfall, 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 and it goes up. I can't quite see where it's going, but I know I'm gonna find the source of that waterfall. And I'm going to climb up against the wall with the water coming down here. I'm going to go up and then get to the next level and then to the next and the next because I'm stoned out of my fucking mind. <laughs> and and I'm like four levels in and I'm clanging and everything. And then I... I, I and I've overcome these incredible challenges, like where I'd reach for something and there was nothing to grab onto, I figured out some way to grab onto something. And then it looked like I hit, a, hit an impasse, but then I saw a stick coming out, so I, I took off my uh, sneakers and I tied the laces together and I made like a little, like a lasso and it turned around and, and I used that to pull me up and then I got to the next level. And I'm almost to the top, and I'm climbing up. And I can see there's nothing, there's like nothing to grab onto. And I look, sticking out is like, not as it's a handle. And it's a handle with another stick that's up, put up like that. So it's like a, it's as if somebody had been in the exact same position I was in. <laughs> and they built this. For a guy like me, or for other people, when there's nothing to grab onto, somebody figured out we just got to put this widget here, and this guy can pull himself up. So I grab it, I pull on it. It's just a fucking stick. I fall backwards. Um, luckily, I didn't hit anything, but it was, you know, kind of a hallucination. There was no, nobody made this fucking thing. It was just. <laughs> Uh, but luckily, you know, I lost my shoes. <laughs> <laughs> and I figured it's time to go home. So i go back to the preach, you know. Got a dinner party on uh, to get back to. And so I got on my motorcycle. And I'm going back, and as, as, as beautiful as the drive was going there, the drive back, something, it got really paranoid. I got really paranoid. Suddenly, the monkeys were Tamil tigers ready to kidnap me and cut off my fucking head. And it was just, like, really scary. And I got really paranoid, and it was really dark. I, I mean, dark mind. The sun was still out somewhat. and But I finally get there. But I'm aware that this is chapter two of the hash talking. Um and it was coming back for payback. You know, it was like, you love that walk so much? Watch where we're going now. And so I get there and when I get to the, the Preet's house, I see that there's like a dinner party going on and I'm too dark and paranoid. I'm like, I sneak around, I can't, I can't deal with it. I sneak into my room. I don't want to see them. And I'm in my, my room and the window is open. And I start thinking about what I'm going back to. Like, when I go, I think about that movie I made, and I think, oh, my God, you were so terrible in this movie. Oh, you're so humiliating. Oh, no. Or you were so, no, now you're going to be, and again, this is narcissism plus hash, okay? Just so we're <laughs> But real, real, like, depression. Like, you know, and it's like, you know, I, I think probably other people who get hit with this shit at 22, like Lindsay Lohan probably, take hash and think about this shit. I don't know. But, um, but I am like having a truly like, where is my life going? This is a nightmare. I'm so embarrassed of this movie. I'm so, I don't want to be a star. I mean, I'm like, uh, wigged out. So, and I'm looking out this window And it's just sheer darkness. I'm thinking about, I don't wanna go back. I I don't wanna go back to New York. I don't wanna see my friends. I don't know. And I'm looking into the darkness of this, like where I could go. And as I'm about to look over, the door to my room flies open, and it's Mr. and Mrs. Preeton, all their dinner guests, and they go, Griffin, Griffin, Griffin. These are our guests. These are... Our... And I go, get the fuck out of my room. Get the fuck out. And I lose my shit. And the look on Mr. and Mrs. Preet's face, I never want to recreate that look again. It was, it was so horrible. I went, wow. This is my first big asshole moment there. And they... Uh, and they slink away, you know, they go away and they leave me. And I, it only makes things worse because, um, you know, I really like them. And I just humiliated them in front of their friends. And, I, and again, I start to look out that window again. I went, You know, I'm already a shitty enough house guest. Um, I should go apologize to them. You don't jump out a window um, before you say goodbye, and then you jump, or, you know, whatever I was thinking. I don't know how serious I was about this, but it was a theme. And... So... I realize that before I do anything drastic, the proper house guest thing to do is to apologize to my host. So I go and I open up the door, and at the bottom, on the floor, is a tray. And it's a tray of all different bowls, different size bowls of different food. And there was like naan and, and and tandoori and rice and there was lentils. And I picked it up and I brought it to the bed and I ate it. I ate, I just shoved it in my fucking mouth. And every bite, I was like, I felt life coming back, life coming back. Like, it was just, I'm cleaning out one bowl with some nan, and then I go on to the next, and you eat with your hands, fingers anyway. And everything, I got it all over my fucking face. And it's the best food I ever tasted in my whole life. And it's so good, I start to laugh. I'm actually, like, giggling to myself as life comes back into me. I'm giggling at the shit I was thinking of before I had this food, of where I was, of the ridiculousness of, of this shit. And uh, so the the bowls are cleaned up. They're just, and I'm going to take them back to the preets in the kitchen and I go to the window, which I'm about to close, and the moon is broken through a cloud and I look out, and all this time I've been on the first floor. (laughs) Uh, So that was really never a big danger anyway. (laughs) Um, And I take the tray and I go into the kitchen and they're just sitting there. And they're looking at me, and I just said, I'm, I'm so sorry, Mr. and Mrs. Breed. I'm so sorry. I was so rude, That was so selfish. But this meal, it saved me. It saved me, you, I can't thank you enough. And they said, well, you seem a little sad, so maybe some food might be good for you. I said, oh, it so was. And uh, I left. Uh, uh, Next day, I continued my journey. I stayed uh, in Sri Lanka, you know, traveled around. I've rarely thought about anything that wasn't 10 feet in front of me. I thought about what was 10 feet in front of me was a tea plantation or a funeral pyre or or cows crossing a street. I didn't think about anything in the distance that I had no control over. And, uh, yeah, the movie came out and... You know, they come and go, that's what movies do. Um, so I don't even remember the details of that, but what I remember is that meal of Mr. and Mrs. Preet's.
2: So the offense itself was, according to the state, um, fairly simple. Um, According to the the state, our client David went to the home of two Iraqi men who lived in the vicinity of a high school that my client hung out in a lot. Um, He spent a lot of his time when he was or wasn't in school there smoking pot and drinking during the days. As did a bunch of other kids, we never could figure out what the interest of these older Iraqi men was. Uh, in hosting this sort of place. But one night, out of the blue seemingly, my client with at least one other person, according to the state, shows up um, at this home, uh, shoots uh, the Iraqi man who was his friend um, in the head. That man lived. Um, And there was another man who just so happened to be in the house. And according to the state, my client shot that man as well. That man died. Um, At 7.30 in the morning, my client is pulled over by the police driving the car that belongs to the Iraqi man who was his friend Um, and in the back of that car is a great number of items that were stolen from that house. So that's the story of my client. He's convicted and he's sentenced to death. Um, So it takes some explanation to know why was I, as a defense attorney, involved in a case where the client was already convicted and sentenced to death. Now, there are two steps to the capital trial process. The first step is the so-called guilt-innocence phase. That's like everything you've ever heard about or seen on TV. It is something that people are very comfortable doing. The second phase is unique to the capital process. That's like nothing you've ever heard about. It's a morality play in which 12 jurors determine on the basis of, I still don't know exactly what, whether it's thumbs up or thumbs down. This person gets to live. Um, Now... What's been sort of worked out over the years by defense attorneys is a way to win these cases. And the way that you win these cases is that you very subtly put on the case for determinism over free will. And let me explain what I mean. Something horrible happens. This is every single capital case. Something horrible happens. People are baffled. How could a human being possibly do this? Okay, We don't understand. We fill the gap with the idea that this person is evil. And when we feel that way about it, we're angry. And angry enough in a situation where the state and the judge is telling you, it's okay. In fact, it might be your duty to sentence this person to death. That we're okay doing that. So what the defense attorney has to do is investigate and you find out who was this client and what was this client's life. And you start at the offense and you go backwards all the way to the beginning, to the parents, to the grandparents. And you show that... This client never had a chance. This is the there but for the grace of God go I. It's the case for determinism. So what are we looking for? What do we find in every single one of these cases? Childhood abuse and neglect. A a family history of mental illness. Developmental disabilities. Brain damage. These are the people that commit murders. The people who have this system of problems. So this is what we're looking for in individual cases. Uh, and let me just say, it absolutely never happens that you get the conviction overturned. Um, what we were trying to do was to get an individual death sentence overturned. My client, mind you, was a 27-year-old black man. I was, at the time, around his age. Um, it was horrifying to me that he was sentenced to death, let alone that the alternative for that was that he would spend his entire life in prison, life without parole. So we were trying to do whatever we could uh, for this particular guy. All right, now, so back to my client David's case. I started investigating this case, and the problem is, I've seen the pattern before. David doesn't fit the pattern. David is a sweetheart who, while he was certainly raised in conditions of uh, neglect, he doesn't have what makes sense to me as the propensity to commit a a killing. I've seen enough of these cases by this point, and I've read enough to know it's a terrible thing to kill a person. Most people just, it, it would be the worst thing that happened to them in the course of their lives everything has to go particularly wrong. It has to be the perfect storm for that to happen, and that just doesn't seem to be adding up in the case of David. So he has 10 or 11 siblings, or maybe more. No one knows exactly. Um, His mother was using drugs and prostituting herself, and he lived there with some of his siblings until he was about four or five. But then he, by the time he was like seven, eight years old, he could do better on his own. So he's pretty much homeless from that time on. He's roaming the streets. By the way, this is... I was living in the South, then. The, the death penalty mostly only exists in the South. So he's, he's roaming the streets of this Southern city. He finds a white church family who takes him in for a few months until it becomes too burdensome. Then he goes somewhere else. He's with neighbors. And people report about him. Every, we talk to all these people over the course of many months of investigation. They all report the same thing. He's the sweetest kid. He's extremely soft. He smells. He's, he seems malnourished. He doesn't have clothes. But could he do something violent? No one... Seems to be able to fathom that. But his brother, they all say. Have you met his brother James? So we go down and one day we're so fortunate to meet his brother James. James, the first time I meet him, it's, it's immediately off-putting. He's got glass lodged in an eyelid from... He went through the windshield when he was a kid and he hasn't gotten it taken out, so one of his eyes like looks like this. He's shifty... I'm trying to talk to him and explain to him that I'd like to set up an interview with him. We can sit down and talk sometime. This is about his brother's case. He won't make eye contact with me. He's sort of shuffling around. He seems at some points to be muttering. Um, It was an unnerving experience. He seemed like an unstable person. He does sign for us uh, his uh, release of his records. The information that comes back seems much more like the prototypical client I'm used to having. This guy's been in and out of juvie many violent offenses, many sexually violent offenses. He's also apparently been di- diagnosed with schizophrenic or schizophrenoid symptoms, disorder, etc. It seems much more typical. So then we start the fact investigation. What, what was going on the night of the offense? We talk to James, the brother's girlfriend. She tells us, oh, it's the strangest thing. James came home at 7 o'clock, which is, by the way, half an hour before my client is arrested. <laughs> And uh, he says to me, I was only with my brother for a short while. I don't know where he was earlier in the night. I was with other people. But he doesn't give any alibi for where that might have been. So it becomes clear to me that we need to sit down and talk to James. And let let me say one other thing about this. I'm having suspicions, obviously, as I'm making clear that his brother is the one who's responsible for this offense. But I should note that as a, a matter of law, it's not clear that that would have mattered to our client. It might be the case that if my client showed up that night knowing that his brother was there with a gun, he would have a guilty enough state of mind for purposes of the law that we wouldn't be able to get the death penalty removed. He would have accomplice liability. He certainly could have had felony murder liability. And also, I'm against the death penalty, period. I don't give a sh- I'm not trying to swap out my client for his brother. That doesn't make me feel good. But nonetheless, I'm, I'm thinking to myself and I'm talking to my team and we're saying... Let's just first find out what happened, and let's talk to the brother, who everyone says was around when he was growing up, and let's see what we can find out. The problem is the brother disappeared. The brother has a handful of kids by a handful of different women in cities all across the South and everywhere else. And he's extremely transient, he's hard to keep a hold of. The case is building on, it's been many months that we've been investigating, and then we find out, okay, we've got a trial date and we still haven't had a sit-down with James. Then I, I look on Facebook, and I see that there's a woman who pops up who's friends with a number of the people who are involved in this case, but I've never heard of before. She lives in West Virginia. I sent her a message saying, I'm investigating this case. Is there any chance you know this guy? I'm looking for his brother, James. She writes me back and says, here's my phone number. He's here right now. I have two kids by him. Come out. You could see him. He wants to help. So I call him, and, and I say, can I come out and talk to you? And, and there's a long pause, and he says, okay, I'll talk to you. I'm not sure how long I'll be here, but if you can get here soon, I'll give you whatever time I have. So right away I get in a car, and I drive, this is many hundreds of miles, and I go stay in some horrible hauler in, in some murder motel in West Virginia. And, and I'm dressed like this, by the way. This is, I don't know, my wife calls it a bit of uh, method acting. I don't know where I come up with the idea that, that this is what a, a field investigator looks like. It just seemed sufficiently neutral. It sort of hid my own personality. And so for five days, I meet with him, and I talk to him in West Virginia. I pick him up every day, and we go to some diner, was was actually ex- excellent. And... Uh, <laughs> And we talk for several hours. This happens for five days in a row. On the first day, he tells me about his life growing up with his brother. Um, And it's everything that I had heard from other people. James is tough. David is soft. James, who's like 14 months older than his brother, is always having to defend him, is always getting in fights for him, is always beating people up for him. David is getting picked on. On the second day, we talk about what their life was like in terms of their family, what they witnessed, their neighborhood. This was a rough neighborhood. Um, They witnessed a lot of violence. It's all starting to click together for me that this is the sort of circumstance in which a person could be sort of uh, acclimatized to violence in which it might have happened, but I'm still not seeing enough to make it make sense for me and for us to make a compelling pitch on behalf of our client. Um, On the third day... um, James starts talking to me about his voices, the voices that he hears. Um, And he's very candid about this. He hears three distinct voices. He's heard them since he was about 16. Um, Two of the voices are homicidal. One of the voices um, is sort of paranoid. And he tells me about the things that they compel him to do and tell him to do. And he says to me in ways that are more or less vague that he sometimes listens to them, but he sometimes has techniques that he developed to put them off. And we talk about... Has he spoken to professionals? Has he been given medication? He's been in juvie. What came of all that? Well, the medication makes him sluggish. It makes him gain weight. It makes him less attractive to people. He doesn't feel like himself. So he tries to fight the voices as best he can with more or less success, and he sort of leaves it at that. So I call the rest of my team, um, the legal team, and I say, this is feeling to me like it's confirming what we thought, but I don't know where to go with that. And the team says, well, let's see first what we can get from him in terms of abuse, in terms of our client. Maybe we can find out something more. Um, and then they leave it up to me, if you feel like it, if you feel comfortable, ask him about the offense and see what comes of it. So on the fourth day, we talk about sexual abuse. Um, and I lead into it by saying, you know, I'm sorry to have to bring this up, um, what you tell me doesn't mean that you have to talk about it on the stand. You don't have to testify to this. Um, and I apologize that the way that our legal system works, I have to get you to confess like, your innermost secrets to me and maybe to the public in order to beg for your brother's life. But I'm not responsible for any of that, and I'm just trying to play within the system to do what I can. Are you willing to tell me what you might know about sexual abuse in your family?" And he says, yes didn't my brother tell you? And I said, no. He says he has no memory of anything like that. And he says, so from the time I was five until the time I was like eight or nine, which means that my client um, was four until seven or eight, we were living with mom, and we had a brother, a half-brother, who was 17, and he came and he stayed with us on the weekends. And every Friday night and every Saturday night for three to four years, he came into our room and he raped us both. And he says, I, I, I can't believe that my brother didn't tell you this, but I can remember so distinctly waiting every night um, and not being able to fall asleep, and the door would rattle, and I would wonder, um, is this going to be the night that he doesn't come? But he always came. And I remember so distinctly um, that my brother and I, one, one Friday, walking home, found a rusty nail on the road, and we were so excited and we planned that we were going to use this rusty nail... When he came in that night, we were going to kill him. But we were so small, and when he came in, I did reach for the nail, but he took it from me, and it didn't make any difference. So in the perverse world of someone who represents somebody who's convicted of a capital offense, hearing that the worst imaginable thing has happened to your client, and forgive me for saying this, is good news. Because it means that you might be able to put this evidence forward for the first time, and someone will say my God, this is why this happened, and maybe then you can save your client's life. So I called the rest of my team, and although people were mortified to hear that this has happened to someone who we now have been representing for some time and care about, people thought we had a chance for the first time, that we might get this guy off death row, that we had something that we could go to court with. So the fifth day, I go back and I meet with James yet again. And most of the day we're bullshitting because I'm, I'm feeling cowardly and I don't want to talk about the offense. And then I think, I mean, it's getting so close, I can already tell, like, I'm counting down the hours until, like, how long it'll take me to drive home. I'll get home to my wife like it's been a hell of a week. And I think, what the fuck? So I say, look, we've got some rapport by this point. You can tell me whatever you want. I want to ask you about the night of the offense. I can't promise you that I can help you legally if you tell me something um, and we decide to try and use it in court. I can tell you I think that the state government is incredibly lazy and that even if you tell me that you did this, they'll probably say that you're a liar just to keep the conviction they have against your brother. But I can't promise that. So here's my opinion. This seems like something that you did. It just doesn't seem like your brother you seem like the sort of person who's had the life, who has the history of violence, who has the history of mental illness, and no judgment involved. I don't see your brother doing this, but I can see you doing this so much more easily. And he said, without really batting an eye, I can see why you'd say that, but no, that wasn't me, I wasn't there. And I was sort of like, you know, clutching at straws and said, would you have told me if it was you? And he said, yeah, I really would have. I really would have told you. I don't know what that means, whether that what that stands for, if that has any value. So I drive home. A couple months later, we're gearing up, we're ready to go to trial. James has disappeared. He's not with the woman in West Virginia, he's not with the other women we know of. I'm starting to think this was all for naught. We're not going to be able to put this evidence forward. He calls me and says, What's happening with this trial? I want to testify, I want to save my brother. And I said, Where are you? He says, Oh, I'm in Georgia. I'm staying with this woman. He says, uh, I'll come. Just tell me the date and time. And I said, the problem is, if you don't show up, it's going to be held against us. We won't get a second chance. But if I give you a subpoena, then if you don't show up, we'll be able to summon you later and put your testimony in, and it won't be our fault. The problem is, I can't give you a subpoena if you're out of state. And he says, well, I'll be here for at least another day. So I drive and I pick him up. And the whole time I'm I'm driving there, I'm thinking, shit, I don't have anything left to talk to him about for work purposes. This is going to be social. (laughs) And he and I are from different worlds. Like, I'm looking at my, like, T-Rex CDs, like, will this fly? (laughs) (laughs) So I pick him up, and, and he's in South Georgia. We drive three hours to cross the border so that I can park at some park and play and hand him a piece of paper. Then we drive three hours back. And then I say, here's the date. Here's the hotel. You know, this is the courthouse. Please be there. And then that time passes, and I'm in the hotel, and I'm waiting, and the first day of trial happens, okay, and I haven't heard anything, and I can't get in touch with him. And that night I'm going downstairs to meet one of the other attorneys on the team, and he walks in the lobby. And he's wearing a suit. I have no idea where he got a suit. (laughs) He's wearing a suit. And he says to me, how soon does this thing happen? I don't have any other clothes. And I said, you're not going on the witness stand tonight or tomorrow. I'll lend you some clothes. But like, I'm glad that you're here. So two days later, we get through and there's a lot of evidence. There's experts, there's trial lawyers, etc. Now we start with the family. And James takes the stand and he's in his suit. And his hair is combed. And he, he looks as well as I've seen him look. And he testifies with this incredible composure over the course of several hours, and he talks about his entire life growing up with David, how they grew up, how David was, you know, the soft one, how he was picked on, how he looked after him, how his brother was such a good person, but they experienced all this neglect. And then he spends 40 minutes describing in grave detail, and, and we're forced in the position of, subjecting everyone in the room to hearing about this sexual abuse in every ounce of detail that I possibly can milk out of him to create an emotional experience for the judge who's going to make the ultimate decision. So that's what we do. And he sits there and he goes through it. And when he was finished, the prosecutor got up and said, we have no questions, which was unbelievable because ordinarily they would tell him apart. He had all kinds of credibility issues. He had criminal history. He had psychological problems, but they just didn't want to touch what was going on in that room after he had talked about this history. The trial is over. The court says they'll take our proof under advisement. We'll get a ruling when we get a ruling. James says to me, okay, I'm out. He gives me a big hug. He says, I've decided not to go back to Georgia. I reconnected at this trial with a woman that I used to know from growing up. I'm going to go hang out with her for a while, see how that works out. Can I have 200 bucks? (laughs) So I gave him 200 bucks. I never saw him again. I go to check email one morning. There's an email in my inbox. It's from one of my colleagues. It's the order in our case. We couldn't figure anything out about the conviction, the court says. The conviction stands. But as far as the sentence goes, the court was moved by evidence from the defendant's brother that he was severely sexually abused over a long period of time, and that if a jury had heard that at the original trial, the result almost certainly would have been different. In other words, the lawyer fucked up. The death sentence is off the table, and he's remanded for a new trial. So I come back home, and the, state, the state's attorneys, they contact us, and they say, okay, here's the deal. You've got the goods with this evidence about sex abuse. We're not going to try and get the death penalty again. We have that option, but we're not going to try and do that we'll agree to give him a sentence of life without parole and drop appeal of that decision. All you have to do is agree that you won't challenge the guilt case anymore. He'll give up all future appeals about his conviction for this offense. And then he'll get a sentence of life without parole. And everyone in my office and everyone who knows anything about the death penalty says, you won, take this. And I'm thinking to myself, this kid's fucking 27 and we have to convince him right now to sign a paper that says he's going to die in prison. And I still don't believe for a second that he was responsible for this offense. And what we're saying right now is that we give up the investigation, that it's over with. So like I sit on this for a while and the rest of the team is saying, there's, noth- there's nothing else, there's nothing else. And ultimately I was convinced that that's right. And we have a couple of conversations with our client who's so malleable that it's like that adds to the difficulty and says, I'll do whatever you guys advise. So we advise him, you should take this plea. So He does. And his sentence is set aside. He's resentenced to life without parole, but his conviction holds forever. So where I'm left with at the end of the story is his brother, James, who was sort of always at the centerpiece of this for me. Did he commit this offense and just refuse to cop to it and maybe get away with it and let his brother sort of sit in prison for the rest of his life for it? Maybe. I don't really know. But did he also sort of do something heroic, and that was really everything in his power to save his brother's life? I think so too.
3: Scowling crackhead Ian i can't forget your face you were a foul human being way back on saint mark's place a white thug when we were both poor a life struggling for one quarter more in sixth grade that's what you'd mug me for a switchblade pressed up to my jugular so i feared for my neck safe streets were few my nerves grew wrecked near to second avenue I soon learned how to steer clear of a crook or a crew And now I'm still here, and look, so are you Forever you've been crackhead Ian It was your kid nickname if we spoke it You were an insane human being Whether you ever did or didn't really smoke it I'd know that tall, thin, bent-over stroll All sunburnt and grim since 10 or 12 years old I guess yesterday's gone faces still indent our soul And I guess both our moms' places still on rent control I was a twig, small, sad sack, punier guy You was as big, tall, and bad back in junior high No sight of someone's face has ever been scarier You'd come chase me from Street Fighter 1 or Space Harrier Hello again, crackhead Ian I still can't forget your foul face My fellow Human being, I know we're both still planted on St. Mark's Place. We've lived our poor lives in close parallel. Within these four or five blocks, we both know so well. You must have grew up near the former theater or old gross hotel. I'm sure you're aware of me here, but oh, I can't tell. It seems you never outgrew your little preteen rage. I still see you look so mean, though now we're middle-aged. I was eavesdropping last year at you, laughing to tell. About bashing some dude with a chair till he fell I slipped fast by you, not wanting our eyes to touch Drifting past by new awnings that had all changed so much I've never known your story, I'm sure it's rotten and tough But how long before these roles for us have gotten old enough? You must have had it so rough, kid Well, I wonder Forged by a tiny portion of love or fortune Goes lightning or goes thunder you're a bad one, Crackhead Ian. A sad son and sunburnt pig. But of all the best kids seen downtown in our preteens, it's just you and me left now, I think. So, how long until you notice? How long until you shake my hand? How long until we're old man neighbors, the last tribesmen of the vanished land? We never even did exchange names. You were an evil kid from Hades when we played these arcade games that made life great in the 80s. Me and Ian, me and Ian, ride into the night of an East Village dream with those games in the street and the heat.
0: That was Jeffrey Lewis with a live performance of his memoir song, Scowling Crackhead Ian, one of my favorite songs ever. (laughs) Uh, Before that, in the episode, first story was by Griffin Dunn, the actor, writer, producer, director. Uh, I just rewatched After Hours. That's my favorite role of his, the Martin Scorsese movie. Uh, He's so amazing and that. Kills me. Um, Then you had a story from Avi Frey. uh, And that story really breaks me up. You know, more than a lot of tell stories, the idea of this character, James, who's lived this brutal life and through this ridiculous, horrible circumstance ends up having a reason to tell his story and having people to listen to him. You know, think of all the people who never tell their story. And you, you don't even know if, uh, if James really felt like he was able to tell his whole story. It sounds like he had more stuff he couldn't tell anyway. It just really breaks me up that, that story. So that was Avi Frey. And uh, so I want to thank, as always, Natalia Sween for co-producing the Tell live series and Gabriel Galvin for co-producing the podcast. Uh, the next installment at the Jane Hotel Ballroom is Sunday, April 23rd. If you want to see this stuff in person, you can go to thetellstories.com. All the details are there. You can sign up for the mailing list. And this episode's version of the Tell theme song written by a fool features Matt Botter, playing the melody on Barry sax, Ian Underwood on bass, John Coward on organ and Chris Egan on drums. Uh so thanks for listening. This was episode 7 of The Tell.